Welcome to A Page in History. Join us on a fascinating journey as we delve into the memories of the world-famous NBC Pages. Get ready to hear first-hand accounts of their unforgettable experiences as they navigated the hallways of Burbank, California and the iconic 30 Rockefeller Plaza. Prepare to hear fascinating stories that were never meant to reach the ears of the general public. And now, your host for A Page in History, David Harris Katz. We have a truly wonderful guest today who started as an East Coast page in the late 90s. He's a man who has witnessed some memorable incidents in television history. Who could forget the infamous time on the Rosie O'Donnell show involving Magnum P.I. himself, Tom Selleck. He'll talk about escorting him out of the building. Plus, he'll share what it was like when Chevy Chase stepped in to console audience members during Saturday Night Live, or how he did the opposite and nearly sparked a fistfight with some audience members. Hear how Jewel, the talented singer-songwriter, sung Not Such a Pretty Tune when our next guest didn't give her what she wanted. And what do Conan O'Brien and a banana have in common? You'll find out. And you'll hear about what was affectionately known as Studio 1H, the legendary watering hole Hurley's, located on the corner of 30 Rock. But our guest talents extend beyond the realm of television. As a stand-up comedian, he has brought laughter to countless audiences, charming them with his quick wit and comedic timing. He will share funny stories working at The View and Good Morning America. Get ready for an episode filled with laughter, anecdotes, and a glimpse behind the scenes of television and more. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Tom Kelly. Woo! That's me! That's me, everybody! Oh, wait, wrong button. There we go. Got his own laugh track. My own applause track. Oh, my God. Have any of your own guests brought their own uh, applause track? No, I'm I'm now I'm jealous. I need my own. I have to go get one of those. Uh, yeah, I splurged for the good sound system. Uh, I'm that excited about this uh, podcast, man. Wow. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you know, um, before we even start, first of all, that was a, a great introduction. It seems like you've done a ton of stuff. And um, I will mention to the audience before we, you know, before we actually went uh, live with the show, uh, I got a chance to talk to Tom and it turns out that Tom thought I was somebody else. Yeah, and yeah, and you know what? You did nothing to dissuade me of that notion for a good five years. Uh, there's a man named David Katz, uh, who is a, a big shot talent guy in radio. Uh, he represents Elvis Duran. He's Elvis Duran's partner at Elvis Duran and the Morning Show over at iHeartRadio. He has produced movies about the radio industry, which you have too. And yeah, and you have done nothing to this. And he knows a lot of the people that you know. So when you came up as a suggested friend and friend requested me, I'm like, wow, I am making it in show business. I'm going to have my own morning show by the end of the week. And then there you are uh, after years of me asking you for coffee. And the other one is just like the other David Katz, you're always too busy to get together. You're always like, oh, I don't know, Tom, I got stuff going on. I got things to do. And I'm like, why don't we have coffee? I don't know. Why don't we meet in a neutral location? And then there've been other weird things where you kind of like faked your way through conversations 
Like, I'm like, hey, maybe me, you, and Elvis could get together. I'm like, what did you think? The actual king? You know, uh, that I, you know, that we're going to go to Graceland together? I, I, I'm surprised you had me on the podcast because I've asked you some creepy things that have nothing to do with you. Like, let's go see Elvis together. Like, what does that mean? You know, let, let me address some of those. Uh, let me address some of that. So, uh, yeah. So basically, Elvis Duran. Now, he, he was he on Z100 at one point, right? He is still on. And listen, this is where I, I want to be careful. He is like the number one rating. Like it's Ryan Seacrest and then Elvis Duran is like the top two or three guys uh, doing morning radio shows every day on broadcast radio in the country. It's a uh, Bobby Bones, Elvis Duran, Charlemagne the God, and uh, uh, Ryan. Ryan Seacrest, I think, are the big four. Anyway, the, but the moral of the story is, yeah, he's a big deal. And if you know him, he's the biggest deal ever. Well, I will and say this. Elvis, Elvis, if you're listening, um, this is a formal invitation to be a guest on uh, a page in history, even though you probably weren't a page, but through, uh, you know, through the connection, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make an <laughs> exception. But I will say this. So just, just to address that, um, so Dave, first of all, I literally go by David Harris cats, um, most often specifically because if you're a Jew in, uh, the Island of Manhattan, there's about 9,000 David Katzes. Now, and to be fair, man, I'm Tom Kelly, which is the Irish equivalent of John Smith. Uh, <laughs> even in his own family, there are four Tom Kellys, and they're all Thomas Joseph Kellys. And the only thing we have different are confirmation names. You know, like my father, <laughs> I think, is Thomas Joseph Colette Eugene Kelly, I think. And nobody uses the confirmation name. Uh, so that said, I understand your spiritual experience of uh, having to be David Katz and you're ungoogleable. There you go. So, you know. so with, with that said, yeah. So David Harris Katz, which is, and, and my production company is called David Harris Katz Entertainment for that very reason. And uh, the, this David Katz, actually, I'll tell you a David Katz story from WNBC, but getting back to your David Katz, um, he, I guess he was the man, right. He's the manager for, uh, Elvis Duran. Yeah, and listen, I don't want to waste like the first three minutes. Okay, I'm sorry. Where I should be promoting my podcast. Yes, my okay. Comedy career. But let in, let's instead Screw promote all that, another that, guy okay. who I would rather be talking to than you and vice versa. You okay. know, uh, so, but, but what I love too is that you invited Elvis Duran on the podcast. What are you, six episodes into the show and you're all, you are already expanding to non-pages on your page podcast. Yes, that's correct. Actually, it's funny. I was going to, I was going to expand it to actually it was funny this i was walking I'll, this is a good place to talk about it i was walking along i was walking along fifth avenue actually it was park avenue and i look in the window and i see a david letterman and we'll talk about that david letterman this would be a good segue for, yeah. for your letterman part but uh i see a letterman sign and i'm like what the hell is this and then i see a building and i'm like what the hell is this now when i was at nbc page the last day when Letterman was on the air, I walked into his set and one is I have the last cue card that he ever read sitting in a box behind me somewhere. Wow. And I also went behind the set and the buildings, which I'm looking at in this space. And I'll tell you what it was in a second. Um, there was a building and I had walked into that set and I cut one of the window washers off of the building behind David, which I also have somewhere. So I walk in and I'm like, what the hell is this? And I go to, to open the door and it was locked and I knocked on it and they opened it. It was an auction where they're auctioning off all, tons of television memorabilia. 
And inside there is a shot of, or inside this thing was Letterman's desk. And if yeah. you look at a page in history.tv, we have a shot. We used to go in, and and again, you could talk about this. Um, we used to go in and sit at Dave's desk and do our mock TV shows. So apparently this guy, you know, ha has, you know, they, they had, it was a book like uh, 200 pages long of all this TV stuff. And in that spot, they were auctioning off David's desk. They had cue cards and all this other stuff. So it so kind I of saw that on. Was amazing. I, I don't know if it was you who shared it, uh, but I saw the listing go up on Facebook that uh, one of his desks oh. was up for auction. Correct. Uh, I'm yeah. impressed that you uh, had that uh, or saw that. Uh, so a few funny ones on one Letterman is the reason why I went into comedy. Letterman probably made me want to be a page. Uh, I was in the page program from 98 to 99, August to August. And so Conan was in the building and I interned at Conan before that. Uh, and I heard Conan had done it. So when I was a page as a stand-up comedian, um, one of the things I would do as a writer would be, I would sneak down to Studio 6A and I would write at Conan's desk because I heard Conan would go sneak in and write at Letterman's desk when he was looking for inspiration. And I worked in the building on the eighth floor at Rosie O'Donnell's show, which was in Studio 8G, and their offices were on the east wing of 30 Rock on the eighth floor. And there would be times where I would want to write or come up with ideas, and I would go sit at Conan's desk. And, yeah, and I would also, you know, imagine I was Letterman at times. And it's funny, I've done warm up, you know, as you said in the thing, I'm a warm up comedian now in television, in addition to being a stand up and writer and doing my own podcast. Uh, and I have had the privilege to sub in at Colbert doing the warm up there. And, you know, the, the arrangement is different from the late show days and the CBS, you know, the CBS late show days. But I loved doing warm up because I would just pretend I was Dave for a minute or two. You know, like when I was in high school, we went for the after party. We went dancing over at the Copacabana and I made the limo stop on Broadway so I could get out and take this awful picture of me in front of the late show studio. Wow. In front of the Ed Sullivan Theater, in front of the marquee. Right. Right, and right. the problem was the marquee was turned off, the blah, blah, blah. There's a great picture of me in front of a blob, but I know what it is. And right. that's from my prom night. So, yeah, so it's cool that you got to see that stuff. And it's funny you uh, that you wandered into that auction and that you uh, had taken things from Dave's late night last show. True story. And it made the New York Post. I didn't get down there in time. But, yeah. Uh, the I was there. I know what you're going to say. And yeah, that, and I, they, that they, threw I, all the, they threw the Ed Sullivan theater stuff out into the dumpster. Would you believe I went dumpster diving? I went I down way too late. Yeah. Did you get anything from it? I did. And it was funny. Oh. There was there was literally, it was so sad because there was, it, it really was so sad. They literally had huge dumpsters and they just piled parts of his set into it. There was so much stuff there that I couldn't even, it was like, you didn't but it was, know it was big well they broke i mean it was so sad they broke parts of it matter of fact what i did take was and unfortunately i i wound up throwing it out because i had it, it i hadn't got old it was if you look at some of the set dressing pieces some of the like molding and different plugs and garbage i took all that stuff and then i i was like what the hell am i going to do with it but but yeah they literally threw the stuff out in the trash 
like it was trash. It should have went into the Smithsonian. <laughs> well, but that's the thing, though. Would it should it have gone into the Smithsonian? And you get into that age of uh, like, is this podcast important? Like, is my time as a page important? Was I really? And it's, these are the topics I explore on my own podcast about my midlife crisis, uh, the Tom Kelly Show. Uh, you know, it's an interesting moment of. Does anybody really care that I helped Rosie O'Donnell shoot koosh balls into the crowd in the 90s or that, uh, you know, we but I feel like we were adjacent to television history. And the weird thing is, as time evolves and as we're aging, uh, is television history relevant anymore? Uh, that's a whole heavy thing. But I think what's kind of cool about that stuff going into the dumpster is real fans like you. Yes, it belongs in the Smithsonian to you and I, but there's also this magic that real people, real freaking crazy super fans who are willing to go into dumpsters like you, got the pieces of it. Now, there's always this imagination thing of I always, my favorite episode of Seinfeld might be the episode where Kramer gets the Merv Griffin set. Which, by the way, I saw Merv Griffin live. <laughs> Wait, you, you're aging yourself quick for a I've, I've actually. Like yeah, I believe when I was like 12 or 10, but anyway, that's another long really? story. But 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 I will say this, but you know, you mentioned taking a shot of yourself in front of the Letterman marquee. Yeah. To that to you that is some and and going to Letterman, you know, going into Conan's studio and and writing in in you know, if you listen to and it's funny, um I always say that this podcast is an homage to uh, a you know fly on the wall with Dana Carvey and David Spade, which I was which which I was a page for them you know during that show, but if you listen to their podcast, they mention moments in their life that were inspirational or helped them you know direct their career or their life and the and those little things like you sitting at the desk or taking the picture that got you to do the view and that got you to good morning America. And that got you to, you know, Colbert. It's those folks that literally, you know, you have to think outside the box and be passionate and, and never give up to, to reach your goals. So I think it's the folks that have that drive and, and care about the little stupid things, the details. That's what, what it may not it may not make you rich but it certainly will get you to achieve your goal i don't know yeah i don't know you know so i'm going through this big thing so uh, not that uh uh not to shift this from page program to promoting my podcast but my podcast is a i basically worked my way up to being arguably the premier warm-up comedian or most successful warm-up comedian in new york city and then I was a big deal at ABC. I left The View to go to Good Morning America. Uh, there were 10 jobs like mine in New York City, and I was doing three of them. And then COVID came. And then boom, Good Morning America, never bringing a crowd back. I've gone from 300 bookings a year with them down to four, I think, for this year is the foreseeable count. Uh, I've become a sub for my old jobs. Uh, and what's I found interesting about reading the, I think it's Tom Shale's book on Letterman. Mm. Uh, and I might be screwing up the author's name, but there's an unauthorized biography of Letterman. And just what I saw was Letterman had everything I dreamed of in life. I had his poster up. While you were a page, I had 
you know, little TV guide cutouts of Letterman in my locker my senior year of high school. And at the end of the day, Letterman achieved everything every comedian would want to achieve, and yet he was still unhappy. True. And what I explore in my podcast, The Tom Kelly Show, is where's the balance between moving forward in a career and being happy? You know, and, uh, and how, do you, how, what's, what's the right amount of unhappiness you need to force yourself to go send out those emails and do the, you know, and do the grunt work for an hour um, versus just being so happy you're just overly medicated? And I'll let you know when I have the answer. 300 episodes in, and I'm still wandering on that front. Um, but to your point about hitting goals, listen, were we big deals getting coffee at 30 Rockefeller Plaza for – uh, you know, for SNL, you know, is, was that a mark of success? I try not to let the job titles get to my head because I've also experienced what it's like to not have the job titles. Right. You know, I, I know, like, I mean, I'll argue I am just as impressed with your WLIR days and your DRE days uh, as I am with your NBC page program days. You know, at a certain point, but but what's interesting is you and I are in a very exclusive boys and girls club. You know, we were around TV shows when all you could watch were those TV shows. You know, and, and it, it's funny, like, I mean, I'll play with my phone right now. And I, I don't think kids today understand how hard we had to work to get to where we're at. And what we had to give up to get to where we're at. Now, you and I are lucky. We're Long Island boys. You know, for me, what did I give up? An hour commute on the Long Island Railroad. But I have friends who are pages who, um, you know, I mean, I'm going to give you a list of people you should book, but, but people who gave up their families to have a chance at standing next to Dana Carvey, uh, you know, and that would be the high point of their lives. Now, for me, I'm just miserable enough that I'm miserable I wasn't Dana Carvey. You know, I'm miserable that I didn't get to be Conan. I, I mean, there was a point in my head, not just me, but I would argue half of the male NBC pages who went to be stand-ups all thought they were going to replace Conan when uh, he eventually gets The Tonight Show. And then, oh my God, what they gave it to Fallon, ah, you know? Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I, but you, we are in an inter, if we choose to make it history, we are a part of history. Uh, right. You know, like, uh, and I worked, I, I got to live a dream as a comedian uh, in the last couple of weeks when I never really have worked in Rockefeller Plaza in my career. And finally, I got booked to work in Studio 6A to warm up a crowd. And it was which, for... Which, which, yeah. Is it Fallon? Is, no, is Fallon? Uh, it was NBC Nightly News Kids. So I finally got to perform with a, for 150 people on the same stage as David Letterman and Conan O'Brien. But it was for an audience of children for a kids show that will air on a Saturday. But it was a dream. You know what I'm saying? Right. But again, you have right. to choose, you know, it's history if you make it history. You know, I mean, and you and I have some similar uh, career paths just uh, six or seven years apart. Um, I, like you were talking about the SNL after parties. I only went to six of them. I don't even know. But yeah, I, actually, I may have, yeah, six of them. I went to six of them. Uh, 
they were the worst day of my life was <laughs> not getting, I mean, I, I mean, it sounds awful, but I can't tell you how it shattered me at the time. And it sounds so silly now. Was it the day your grandpa died? No, actually where I felt awful was the worst day of your life. Uh, the day you were in a horrific car crash. No. Was it, uh, when you found out your loved one died? No. Uh, the worst day of my life might've been, or felt like it was the day I did not get the studio eight H desk assignment. Right. That was the assignment where for, uh, 10 of the 20 weeks the show was on the air you got to uh hang out while the show was being righted and created i know people who went on very unique food runs for some of the stars and the the thought was if you got that desk assignment you would eventually get to be the receptionist at saturday night live and if you got that receptionist job, well, then they're going to see you and you'll get to be a writer at Saturday Night Live. And then you're going to be a big deal, whatever the hell big deal meant. Um, and it was weird being a page because it was like seeing all of your dreams coming true. But there was a glass wall between you and the, you and those dreams. You know, I mean, that was a very powerful moment for me. Um, and I feel like there are just fun stories, that, but everybody, I, but what was interesting was we were all young and we were all so close to our dreams. And then I would argue a different set of dreams was happening around other people's dreams coming true. But I will. You know, I'm I gonna, mean, yeah. I'm going to jump in because so you mentioned a bunch of things. I, I need to write some of this stuff down, but a couple of things. One is, um, yeah, I mean, it's funny. Um, some of those things, I, actually, it's funny. I'll give you an example. The, the, you know, everybody as they grow up, you know, there are things they want to accomplish, and that mean mean a lot to them. So, you know, be, some people may want to be rich, some people want to be this that, but there are certain things where you know you feel like like either you've made it or 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 you just feel good because that was sort of your goal. So, as far as I remember, you know, when we grew up, you know, Henry Winkler was was my yeah. favorite right big big fan so all i wanted to do in life was to meet or to go see happy days that's all i wanted to do and did you see it well the show was canceled and i literally said to myself i will never get a chance to see happy days fast forward to college uh god bless my parents i went to emerson college which i mentioned oh, before for you and it was great and yeah. I went on something called the Hollywood seminar and we flew to LA and we wound up meeting the biggest shots, big, big, big shots in the industry. I literally walked into an office, stuck my hand across the desk and shook Henry Winkler's hand. I literally said at that point, I can die. So, so and do you still feel good about that? Or are you kind of, now I do. no, I literally, You're not I literally that anymore. No, I literally am like, I, that was something I wanted to do. I shook his hand. Ironically, I had met, I ran into him a couple of times later in life, which was weird, but that to me was so important. And it was probably just like you were sitting at Conan's desk writing or, or standing next to Dana Carvey. I mean, if in your life, and again, if you want to be a doctor, you want to be a stand-up comedian, you want to be a, you know, bricklayer, whatever it is. You know, if you if you wound up seeing the Bricklayer 2000, you know, and it was like the best machine that you had a chance to work, if that what makes you happy, then I think you've achieved your goal. So I think that that, you know, people have all these dreams. And I think that if you can 
feel good and accomplish something that to you is important is really powerful and I think is is the most important because there are times as being a page and even you doing stand up in 6A I mean 6A is a legendary studio you know there's very few people that can say that you've done what you've done did you get rich off of it no but hopefully in your in your being your your you know your content was saying like that's a major accomplishment in my opinion. Yeah, uh, you know what it is? So I'm trying to get back to, I think the hard part with flying so close to the sun is it makes Miami seem cold. You know, I don't know if that's gonna be, uh, put that in a fortune cookie. Uh, <laughs> you know, put that in a fortune cookie, people. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, but I think we all have to choose to make history. I think history is that what you make of it. And I don't mean to be as a, you know, like, like you got like I'm trying to find the balance between creating a career where I'm making money again and good star effer stories or star humper stories, whatever word you want to use. Mm -hmm. um, like, I mean, listen, I, my Henry Winkler story is in some ways better or not as good as yours. And that I was working at Good Morning America and there's Henry Winkler and uh, there's a line to get into the bathroom. And I'm like, come on with me, uh, Mr. Winkler. I'll take you for a walk. We walked for a minute or two through the wandering hallways. And as it was over, and he was such a nice man, and I kind of had the same thing of, uh, I loved happy days as well. When I was in the third grade, we called the boys' room our office, just like, uh, you know, just like he did. And, I, and when I finally brought him to the bathroom, I looked at him and I said, you know, man, you're going to find this hard to believe, but there's an eight-year-old in me who's very happy he got to walk Henry Winkler to the good bathroom. Right. And we both laughed and I walked on. You know, I think history is that which you choose to make it. And what I and to your point, uh, listen, I, I, you know, I was Kenneth. You know, I was 30 Rocks Kenneth. I was bright eyed, bushy tailed. In some ways, I still have that spirit. And that's what made me a great daytime warm up comedian was being able to go and look, golly, you know, uh, and, and listen, man, I have met. Like, it's funny, like right now I'm looking for a warm-up comedian job and there may only be one open in New York City next year. Kelly Clarkson, call me. Uh, that said, um, you know, I've met and performed for every living president. Whoa. You know, I did, the, I did The Apprentice with a man named Donald Trump as host, and if you knew which stage manager jokingly introduced me to the host of the show and you have that moment of, geez, that's the guy who became president, you go, no way. I mean, I, I can only imagine how, you know, people who felt about, you know, that guy who did the movies with the monkeys who became president, you know, that's Ronald Reagan, you know, but to people of our generation, that's Ronald Reagan. Um, yeah, I, I mean, but the star effort stories are good. But I think as a comedian, as a human being, as creators, uh, we use the star humper stories to bring people into the rest of us, you know? Well, well uh, let me touch back again, you, you know, and, and again, for, for the uh, listening audience, because um, I let, you know, again, we want to give them uh, Tell them funny these great oh yeah stories, like, i mean that's what i'm saying amazing. i feel bad for being it's too so, you're gonna no no it's it's great because i i will mention um you know trump uh which again i don't trump I, story? I, yeah i don't think i mentioned i don't think i've ever mentioned this before but you mentioned trump because i i want to keep this 
you know, total keep politics. Yeah. Out. But we, when when we were at WNBC and I was getting talent to be in the WNBC for New York campaign, um, I'd written to Seinfeld and I got Seinfeld to be in it. And I'm going to go back to SNL in a second. Um, but I remember I, I did call um, Trump's office and ask them to be in it. And again, the, the secretary, it's funny you mentioned, you know, but the secretary was was like, yeah, 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 whatever, blah, blah, blah. So I said, I'll send you a tape. And she hung up at the phone and I, I literally ran from 30 Rock up to Trump Tower. I was standing at the door right when she hung up the phone. She was like, how the hell did you get here? Handed her the tape. The next thing you know, I'm downstairs with Trump having him say I'm for New York in front of the Trump building. And actually at the time, yeah. he was, you know, he was very nice. But again, you know, it's funny, you know, at some point we're going to die. And, you know, all of these moments are moments. I, and I said, if I don't get excited about meeting certain talent or doing certain crazy things, then I should just totally get out of the business completely. But so all of these little things, like it really, I get excited about them. So, you know, I think, again, for anyone wanting to get into the business, you know, if you don't get excited, in my opinion, about seeing this person or doing that or getting to go places, you know, if it doesn't really make you excited, then maybe this isn't the right job for you. So I'm going to completely um, disagree you know. with you uh, uh, in a firm sense. I think what made me a great page mm -hmm. or but what made me a better or actually what made me a great warm up comedian that I needed as a page was a little bit of the detachment. Like I found the people I know in the page program who went the furthest were the ones right. who really didn't give a crap. Now they were respectful. They were good human beings. Uh, a woman I paged with, and we had similar careers. We both were pages together. She went to Conan. I went to Rosie O'Donnell. She was Conan's favorite page for years. Uh, Sharon Hardy was, is her name. And Sharon Hardy is the pure, one of the most pure souls I ever met in television. And she treated Conan the same way she'd treat you. Now, with, now, with 100% kindness. Uh, I found at a certain point, I enjoyed meeting the audience and real human beings in the crowd more than whoever was on the stage. And that was my secret to performing and being funny. You know, listen, I have opened for, I mean, let's go crazy for a minute. I've opened for every living president. I've opened for Taylor Swift three times. I mean, at Good Morning America as a warm-up comedian. Um, but I, I, I've opened for BTS at the height of their career. I have a clip that went viral. It was uh, 2 million views on YouTube and counting. And it was me and a 12-year-old girl who was just happy to be there. Uh, so that's my magic is getting back. But, you know, but you're right. The Star Humper stories are amazing. Uh, I had Jewel call me an a-hole on the ninth floor of uh, the pit. You know, uh, now, was it, now, what was funny was my detachment was there was a blonde woman it was the night of the tree lighting ceremony. I'm bringing a tour up to the SNL Overlook. And this blonde woman says, I need to use the bathroom. Where's the bathroom down that way? And I'm like, you can't go that way. You got to go down that way. And I point down that long hallway with the celebrity pictures. She's like, yeah, but I don't want to use that one. I want to use that one. I'm like, that's not for you. That's for the celebrities. You got to go you down that way. You didn't know who she was at the time. And then she walks out and then she's like, Merry Christmas, you have an a-hole. Now, I was told... <laughs> I sent Jewel to the public restroom. Right. Now, I'm not, I, to this day, have never asked her about it. I've been in a room with her again. I've never told this story in public. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it was Jewel who called me an a-hole. Now, good. Star Humper stories are better. Same hallway. Ninth floor. 
SNL Overlook, right in that long hallway, we had a tendency to overbook uh, Saturday Night Live. It would be one of those things where, I mean, to this day, I believe Saturday Night Live is the absolute hardest ticket to get in New York City. More so than Hamilton, more so than Taylor Swift, blah, blah, blah. Because there's only, uh, I think it's seats, let's make it 200. Yeah, I've talked about it. I'm like, I don't know. It's funny. We have to have Chris Sulger on here. uh, Oh, there are. Yes, Sulger. It's either 200 200 or 300. I don't know. I I don't know the exact count. I don't think it's as high as three. I don't think it's as high as three. But Sulger, who was on my panel and hired me as a page. uh, God bless you, Chris Sulger, wherever you are, who also always called it guest relations. Not the page program. Guest relations. And And I asked Chris, Chris. Chris, if you're listening, for the love of God, could you finish the form and send it in? <laughs> He's like, yeah, cats, I'll oh, be on the thing. Your form yeah. is your form is scaring off some great guests, man. Honest to God, uh, my 20, uh, it took me less time to do my 2022 taxes. Actually, in, in fairness, you did a good job. You, you're actually one of the few. Because I thought you, you were the other all, day cats. All, all you did was just fill out, you know, like just give me a thing and a thing. Very simple. You did a good job. Well, well here's what's nice about being a page. Is you're right. If like, and this is stuff I should have done these stories at the beginning to rope people in. I hope people are still listening. If you're still listening, send me an Instagram DM at Tom Kelly Show on Instagram, Twitter, Match.com, and Venmo. Uh, but, but if you are still listening, I should have like done. You know, you should do the one sentence tagline stories to. Uh, uh, to, to rope people in. I think if I were formatting your podcast, next guest, you do the quick hits at the beginning, then you get deep. Uh, I found, like, listen, like a great story I don't really tell too often is Ninth Floor Overlook, we've overbooked the audience. It would be one of those things where there were 200 people, but oh my God, Michael Jordan just showed up at 11.15. That's two less tickets. But we let everybody up, tell them to go home. So now I'm there telling people who got in, that they have to go home. And who walks out from the big green room on the eighth floor? It's Chevy Effin Chase. And he is there to soothe the people. He heard the melee and he's like, hey guys, uh, I'm sorry that they're putting you through this. And for whatever reason, the people in the line are just not impressed. They waited six hours for these shows. They do not want to be turned around. They may not even realize it's really him, but they're more, they're so angry that they're being turned away at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and Chevy's like, they're like, Hey guys, come on. What do you say? Uh, uh, we do our own show here in the hallway. I'll do a weekend update for you right now. And I say, wow. Yeah. You could do some Nixon jokes. <laughs> And he just looks and goes, yeah, Nixon jokes. That's really funny, kid. And walked away. And then he punched you in the face. You know what? He was very nice to me uh, I mean, in that moment because I think he realized these people were so angry, nothing was going to make them happy. And let me be the only guy on earth who tells a nice Chevy Chase story. But that he was trying to be nice to a large group of people who were just so miserable. Uh, Santa Claus could come by and give them all free cars with Oprah, and they were not going to smile. Um, but and it's that, funny. We, we used to see when, when the, when this, I don't know if they do it anymore. It was, it was clearly a fire hazard, but we would see people on the steps going up, which they may even fall. But if we overbooked the studio, we would put people on the stair, the stairs going on the balcony, which, which clearly was a violation. Um, so yeah, I could only, I would, I'd probably punch you in the face too if you asked me to leave. 
I'd be pissed. Yeah, and well, the, well, the punch in the face story was a little different. Uh, there's a woman who you need on the show, Chrisetta Suttles. I call her Chrisetta Rebuttals because she always has a sassy answer for everything you say. But Chrisetta is one of the nicest human beings on earth. And you talk about how in the page program, we haven't even talked about how great, like the page program for me was the most in, uh, interesting co-ed fraternity you could join on earth. Cause you're basically joining with people who have the same dreams as you and you're competing for a very, you've achieved a dream right? But within that dream. You're now competing for jobs within that dream. They have since restructured the page program. Now the page program now is uh, a corporate training program. Mm -hmm. But when we were there, you were really just hired to be tour guides and ushers. And if you were lucky enough to get close to something good for you, I mean, it could have been a reality show when we were there. So I was miserable at a certain point. I didn't get the SNL desk job. Um, I did have the SNL talent escort job for four weeks, but I really didn't care. I, honestly, for me, uh, walking a celebrity in, really didn't matter unless it was somebody I cared about, if that makes sense, you know, um, but put that on the side. Uh, I did the SNL job for, uh, the escort job. There were two women who got fired from the escort job, uh, because they were hanging out in the VIP room with the VIPs and explain what the, for the listeners, what, oh, so what, like, okay, so what so is two, this escort job? So, so I'll tell you the escort job and then let me go back to the standby line job story in a second. But the escort job was, listen, SNL, it's historic uh, when you talk about, you know, the, the Saturday Night Live after parties are historic. I know you and I are going for a cleaner podcast, so folks, go read the books. Okay, there's a whole other story of there was a lot going on at those shows. And what they had was they had the room where everybody could go in. And then they had the VIP room where the celebrities were allowed to go in. Uh, and the escort job was you would walk, you know, famous people up to the show during the show. And then at the after party, when I was there, my job was work to work the velvet rope, keeping uh, regular people from the VIP room and me. Okay. In the part, in the party, at the party. Right. And basically I'm pretty sure the three days I had the job, I wasn't letting celebrities into the room and all the union guys were in the VIP room, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so eventually when the desk job came up for the second time, I didn't get it and I was shattered. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, I'm now ushering on Saturday night. And I, and one of the joys I had was telling the standby line they were not going to get into the show. They would have, you know, these angry human beings would line up for a day or two ahead of time. Right, right. Explain that. So, okay. So a standby line to get into a TV show is, you know, kind of like the old Jerry Seinfeld joke of you're standing by to get a ticket. And just like the old Jerry Seinfeld joke, uh, sometimes on the standby line, you just stand by and wave, you know, you stand and wave by. That's the Seinfeld joke. Butchered it, but that's a Seinfeld joke. So um, what they would do is you, you'd start outside on 49th Street, and then they would bring you into the internal hallway in Rockefeller Plaza on 49th Street, and you were standing by to be invited to take the elevator up to the eighth floor and to be whisked into the world of comedy and imagination. And 
something happened at the eight o'clock show where the crowd was rather belligerent and they were sticking around for the live show. So they were at the, there was a lot of people who did not get into the dress rehearsal and they were belligerent. So explain that also for the listeners about so there's there's a, for, shows. For Saturday Night Live, they always tape. So it's 200 tickets per show, but they well, all address rehearsal at roughly nine or eight o'clock. Well, yeah. So, so let's just explain I, that. So for the folks listening, um, people don't realize there's actually an entire show happening from eight to uh, uh, from what is it? Well, I think it goes to 11. It's a two hour show. Prior to the yeah, live show at roughly eight to ten, let's make it eight to ten, eight and then 10. they an hour and a half rewriting quick. Right. So, so again, all the sets. You know, if there's if there's a if there's a uh, sketch where the talent gets you know th- soaked with a bottle of water or or they get slime dumped on them, all of that stuff has to be reset. So if it's a set where they dump stuff, all yeah. Over, it all's got to be clean. They got to get a new suit. I yeah, mean, it's actually, all it, done. I, I could tell it in a sentence yeah. here is listen. what they do is they try the show out from eight to 10 o'clock. They see where the jokes work. They see what jokes don't work. And then they edit it down to a 90 minute show uh, between let's make it 10 and 1130. Right. Boom. And you and there are people on the standby line. They at the time they would take a chance at getting into both either or. You know, if you got into the, you know, and it would be the same this, it would be the same that, and then it would be really the same show, but a little bit different by airtime. So whatever it is, the, 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 the crowd was already belligerent. And I'm now downstairs and I'm talking to one of Lauren's assistants at the time. I can't remember, but all of his assistants were blonde and beautiful. And this one was from Texas. And I said, you know, I don't want to tell these guys um, that they're not getting in. Because uh, they were really rough before, and and this one, you know, this beautiful blonde Texan Lornette, they would call them the Lornettes. Um, <laughs> and whoever the Lornette was, she said, "Well, if you fall off the horse, you got to get back on." And I'm like, "All right, I'll go." And there's my friend Cressetta. She's arguing with a man about whether or not he can get in. Cressetta is uh, uh, pointing at the standby line paper saying it it's it says the ticket's not guaranteed it says the ticket's not guaranteed okay and i go up and i'm like sir i'm sorry man it's not guaranteed it it, it was a standby line and i and i was in a kind of like a sweet nice place okay and all i know for sure is i look in a different direction and all of a sudden a crumpled piece of paper hits me on the forehead and I've never actually been in a real fist fight in my life, but I must've had a look on my face and started lunging towards the guy. But three security guards start holding me and pulling me back. Like I was about to kill him and a couple people pull him back. But the guy was, and again, he was like a 70 year old dad was ready to get into a fist fight with me. And I just remember the security guards are pulling me back and I don't know if I was, I, I've never swung in my life, but I must've looked like I was ready to. And yeah, but that was, but that was the weird thing of being in the building. And you're sitting there like, wow, I'm about to fight with an angry tourist and upstairs, you know, Dana Carvey's having champagne with all the other pages. <laughs> I don't know about that, but. Uh, no, but that's what it that's felt funny. like. Right, that's right, right. 
So let me let me ask you some other things. You mentioned um, talk about escorting folks. Uh, it's funny, Rosie O'Donnell. You mentioned earlier, um, and I remember I did work a couple of her shows, and I do remember it was great because before she would do the whole coup, she'd shoot things into the audience and blah blah. Tell so, us about that, and tell us about. So Mr. listen, Trump's it's very important that I add before we do any Rosie O'Donnell stories. Is uh, Rosie O'Donnell is the fairy godmother of my career. Uh, I owe every, uh, you know, it's such a sentence, but I owe every good thing I have had happen in the last 10 years of my life to Rosie O'Donnell and my friend, Jeanette Barber, good night. Uh, who, who are both mentors of mine. Yeah. Um, Rosie in the year 1998, you got to remember, uh, the world was a changing place. Uh, the world was a changing place. Actually, this has to be 1999 at this point, spring of 99. Uh, Rosie had her talk show, which was uh, in Studio 8G, and it was, it was, uh, she reinvented daytime audiences, et cetera, et cetera. And she also hit this weird transition of, she was going from the queen of nice, and I think she was also sort of frustrated that there were real things that, problems that were just starting to happen in the world that people weren't talking about. And, uh, uh, it's a longer story later, uh, a longer story for another time, but I was a Dateline NBC page during Columbine, where I slept in the building for three days, editing news footage as it came in, logging news footage as it came in, helping Dateline, uh, and Dateline was on four or five nights a week at that point, you know, helping the folks at Dateline figure out what was going on in Columbine. And I actually am proud to say that from looking at raw footage, I knew the kids, uh, Harrison Klebold, uh, what yeah, were the last names? They were bullied. I knew they were bullied before America realized those guys were bullied too. Not, not I'm not sympathizing with them, but I, I had insight into the story the rest of America didn't have. But the big thing was, and it's a story that who'd have thought we're talking about it 20 something years later, was gun control. I mean, and again, it just seemed like such a new conversation. And Rosie, who in her monologues, she would do a mix of, uh, she would do a mix of serious stuff and silly stuff, and I happened to be assigned to Studio Eight H, which was next door to Rosie's studio, to work at a GE meeting. General Electric owned NBC at the time, and you know, so you're sitting next to all these people producing Rosie's show, and Rosie every day is like, "Well, Tom Selleck's going to be on on Thursday." And he's going to be talking about uh, the NRA and I'm going to have a reasonable conversation with him. And she was saying this every day on air for a day. And I, and I just remember being 22 and saying, yeah, that's not going to go well. That's not going to go well. If I were her publicist, if I was his publicist, I would not be doing that interview. That's not going to go well. And you folks can watch the YouTube of it. It went the way I thought it was going to go as a 22 year old. Right. which is Tom Selleck comes out. He's got his five talking points about what the NRA is. Well, we're educated. And listen, Tom Selleck is a gentleman and a great man. And I'm sure you believe the five talking points. And there's just a middle ground that nobody has come to 20 something years later on gun control. But he goes out and he gives the standard talking points, which quite frankly seem a little trite nowadays. You know, like, okay, well, we're educating kids about guns. We're teaching kids about morals where NRA is good about this. NRA is good about that. And, and I am reserving judgment for the rest of this story. Um, but Rosie at that point 
went nuts on him and talked about another set of good points. Blank number of kids dead at Columbine. This is going to, and Rosie was ahead of the curve. If we don't do something now, this problem's going to happen again and again and again. And here we are. Right. Um, and I don't blame Tom Selleck for this. You know, he's doing, he, he's trying, he just wanted to produce, a, he just wanted to promote a Lifetime movie. And remember, he was somewhere in between Miami Vice being a washed up actor and his many, many years of being successful on Blue Bloods. Nobody uh, that was coming Magnum. at that point. Mag Magnum. Well, he went from what? Yeah, Magnum. Mm -hmm. So he's somewhere in between Magnum and Blue Bloods just right. trying to survive and keep his name alive. And he comes out of the interview. And I'm telling you something. The temperature in the building dropped to freezing. Oh. The whole floor. Everybody's like, something historic just happened here. Something that's going to make national news just happened a minute ago and Selleck is walking out and I, 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 I am paraphrasing every quote that I'm making now, but I think he just said, holy crap, I just ruined my career out there, which it sure felt like he did. He just alienated. He, depending on how you look at that clip, he sure looked foolish in front of uh, his demographic, you know? Uh, so poor guy, uh, is squirming and uh what's his name uh bob barker then walks out the hallway and you talk about the versatility and awkwardness of the show i think bob barker was going out to do an audience game and selick looks at barker who's about to go do a happy interview as if none of this ever happened and selick just looks and yells out watch out bob it's rough out there and bob barker's just like yeah hi gotta gotta go bye you know, and Bob Barker was a game show host, host of The Price is Right, for anybody under 40 what, listening to this. <laughs> and the wacky thing is, I was assigned to be a, you know, I was a page escorting rich GE executives into a stockholder meeting of some sort. And one of the security guards, I'm sitting there in my polyester blazer. Uh, I was not wearing a peacock tie because that was the year of budget cuts and I lost my peacock tie. So I was allowed to wear a regular tie for the rest of the year. And one of the, uh, his name was Patty, I think Patty Riley. Patty says, Tom, take off your pins. Oh. And we walked Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck did not have a car booked for his next appointment. He was just going to casually walk across Rockefeller Plaza to go do a radio interview somewhere else in the complex that was outside of the building. And six, you know, three NYPD cops and probably me, and I forget if there was another page or not, all stood around him and walked him to his next location to keep him away from the paparazzo. Mm -hmm. And there was no paparazzo there yet. And the next day, I was not a part of this. Uh, remember, Howard Stern is on broadcast radio at the height of his fame and, uh, uh, you know, and Howard Stern was feuding with Rosie O'Donnell at the time. Howard Stern challenged his listeners to go storm 30 Rockefeller Plaza to go um, bully Rosie. And I think Howard Stern himself tried to walk in. And that one of the pages, I, I, that has to be video footage of this, but I think there was a man named George Verutis had to stand and not 
he, he stood in the way of Howard Stern. So that way Howard Stern would have to push him to get into the building. Cool. You know, that's what it was. I mean, it was, and now listen, Howard Stern has found Jesus, blah, blah, blah. He's a better man and a kinder man now. Um, you know, Rosie and Howard are friends now, but in that point, Rosie and Howard had a very dark feud going on. And, and again, there was this energy in the building of, and this is pre nine 11 and whatnot, but that somebody could come in and do something awful, you know? And remember at that point, pre nine 11 security at 30 Rockefeller Plaza was incredibly flimsy. Oh, yeah. Flim you, could just, you could literally just, I mean, like you I could said, almost walk in. You could almost just walk in. You could pretty and much walk in, right? To that point, I remember, and I have nightmares about this because I have a slight fear of clowns. Um, but at one point, somehow, a woman in clown makeup snuck up to Rosie O'Donnell's offices uh, the year I was working there, a year later. You know, and it had to be pre 9-11. But yeah, but like one day, like, don't go out into the hallway. I was going to go to the bathroom and someone says, don't go out into the hallway. And there's just a woman in clown makeup, like waving left to right, like, hi, I'm a clown. Will Rosie discover me? You know, yes. and then again, listen, and again, you talk about the magic of how close we were to celebrities and whatnot. And, and, and I hope you don't mind me rambling. Um, but when you talk about how flimsy security was and how and how fame and fortune seemed so easily accessible. Um, actually, here's a celebrity. Here's a story I did not put into this, uh, your notes. But do you remember who Dick Cavett is? Yes, I do. He was a magician. So am I. <laughs> okay, he was, a, but also a legendary late night yes. host who went one on one with Carson for years. Yes, uh, legend has it on Dick Cavett that Dick Cavett one day, while working as a copy boy in Thirty Rockefeller Plaza. Um, basically just walked into Jack Parr's office and left a pile of jokes on Jack Parr's desk. Ooh. And Jack Parr looked at the jokes and said, who is this guy? Let's hire him and became a writer the next day. And Jack Parr, uh, I'm sorry. And then Dick Cavett was very kind to me. I worked as a page at Dateline NBC on Johnny Carson's obituary. Cause what they do is Dateline NBC at that point was updating all of their obituaries. They have, so like for celebrities, if you're famous enough, here's your standard for uh, fame, David Harris Katz. If is, you have your, your obituary so, written. <laughs> they they pre-produce your obituary. So that way when you die, they just have to put the VHS tape into the VCR. And right, then actually, actually let's pause that pause for that. Cause that, that is true. Uh, people don't know that, you know, when someone dies and all of a sudden they got this whole story, for the most part, most of the obituaries for for anyone right yeah, they're famous, done. Right? They're already done already. They're written. They're up to date. So as soon as they die, they people. just get big. And then the short story is on on uh, Dick Cavett was I ambushed him with jokes after doing interviews about Johnny Carson, and Dick Cavett left the nicest message on my mother's answering machine, and I wish I still had that tape. That tape got lost. Uh, and it was, you know, like your jokes are sharp, but anyway, it did validate. Uh, I, I mean, and then there's just a message on the refrigerator, Tommy Dick Cavett called check the machine is written in paper. Yeah. I think like yeah. I said, uh, but that was the magic of being a page. You never knew you were really one magical story away from a career happening. Right. Every day I would come home and tell my parents, you're not going to believe this. Like it was, yeah. and again, it was such a short period of time. It was, 
it it was amazing. But let, let me get yeah. through. Listen, and not to give away some other stories, this is a little bit post-page program, but I worked out at the NBC gym on the eighth floor. Yeah. I have seen Tom Brokaw naked. Wait a uh, second. Wait, wait. So, hold on. So I'm going to pause. So literally, I've seen Tom Brokaw naked as well in the in the gym. Oh. Yeah, but you worked out so, of that gym or a different I gym? I worked out of the gym. No, I worked out of the NBC gym. That's a great gym. gym. But that was so, the magic of the building. Wait a building. You, you'd it's be so there. funny you would say that because literally, and again, for the listeners, we NBC had a gym, which was gorgeous. I mean, it was a really nice gym. You could go up whenever you wanted. And I would go up often. And I can't believe that you just, because literally Tom Brokaw, I guess he walked around naked often because I saw oh, him as well. Around naked. It was the gym. You walked out oh, of the gym. Out of that thing. I mean, I, now right. I, I didn't look down. I didn't see, well, this is the largest source of news in I, America. I, I ran into Tom. I ran into him in a store once and I was helping. I, was, I, I, I should have mentioned, you know, by the way, I saw you naked when years ago. So uh, it was funny about a page thing, but when like he was Mr. Brokaw when I was a page there and it was weird working at that NBC nightly news kids show. I just talked about, I kind of went back and forth on Lester Holt. Is he Lester or is he Mr. Holt? Like, because I wasn't really up on the culture of the building anymore, but it was weird. Cause they, when we were pages, like they make fun of Kenneth on it, yeah. but I would argue in the nineties, especially being the end of the Chris Solger and Jackson generation of pages, I was at the end of what we call that person, Mr. or Miss. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I don't think yeah, corporate uh, like the vice presidents were all like Rosie O'Donnell's brother helped me get a job at the Rosie show. And he was Mr. O'Donnell. And I always joke about that whenever I see Eddie O'Donnell. Um, I'm like, uh, you know, Rosie's Rosie, but you're Mr. O'Donnell. Well, it's funny because because in 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 the page lounge, did you have photos of all the important? Yeah, that mezzanine. Was it on the mezzanine when you were there? Yeah, yeah. So Not that like, whole part of the building, you know, that's an NBC waiting room now for audiences. Well, yes, I know that. Well, there's stair where the store used to be. They they built that staircase going up to the mezzanine, and I guess is that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. what. I mean, I don't know the exact layout, but in that general area now, there's a huge, beautiful waiting room for audiences with a Starbucks there instead of making them wait on the street and line them up like they're going to be uh, uh, executed at the end of the line. uh, It's actually a comfortable waiting room. And uh, yeah, they've done they've actually started relating to guests in the guest relations department. No, no, no. (laughs) It's funny. So let me let's talk about let's let's switch gears to something a little more positive. Tell me about Conan O'Brien and a banana. What's that? What's up with that? Okay, so I got two stories on Conan. Um, I don't love the banana story so much anymore, but we'll make oh, it. These there are two separate stories. No, 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 it's a two-second story. There was a woman, they, uh, the, whoever the page was, like I remember there's a story about Conan and bananas where Conan at one point, Conan's assistant was getting Conan a banana every day, right? And so what would happen would be the desk page would be the one to put the, give the banana to Conan's assistant. But then there was another page or intern who would go out looking for the perfect banana. And there would be times where I would come in, I'd bring a banana and the page and Conan's assistant would look at the banana and they would reject some of the bananas and send me out again, right? <laughs> so I would go out, get another banana because you wanted to find it not too brown and you wanted to be perfect. And then one day Conan says on TV during the storytelling part of a show, he's like, I don't understand. I guess I must have said I liked bananas once and then they started bringing me bananas every day. And the thing is, I don't even like bananas. And I'm telling you, obsessing over Conan O'Brien's bananas was like a week of my damn career. Wow. 
And you were always hoping that. And again, that was the weird thing. You'd be like, if I bring Conan a perfect banana, I'm going to get discovered and I'm going to become a production assistant and I'm going to get a show, you know? And then the next thing you know, I'm going to be hosting later instead of friggin', uh, you know, Bob Costas. Bob Costas. That's funny. Well, I, I will say this, and, and it's funny, you mentioned, um, which which may piss or not piss you off, but one is, you know, I did have that page desk uh, assignment, you know, on, on SNL. Um, so I, you know, so I did work that that with Dave Schiff, who now Dave Schiff, who, God bless him, he went on to be a writer for the 70s show. So he's written like 9,000 episodes. So he did really go nuts with that. But, and I've mentioned this before, Steve Corin. Now, do you know you know Steve Corin? Steve was also a page with me, you know, my group, and he wound up getting the receptionist job, and he did wind up becoming a writer on the show, and he did wind up becoming a writer for Seinfeld. Yeah. So literally everything that piss you off. And listen, man, and listen, you want to be crazy, man. Listen, I, again, I was and will be again or will achieve more than I was one of the 10 most successful warm-up comedians in New York. Uh, I am a successful stand-up comic, and that was a part of my, uh, you know, that's one of my many dominoes of my career. Uh, I was in a pool of talent. Listen, what I there's a woman, Sarah Haynes, who you need to have on the show. Sarah Haynes was the rosy desk page for, she was the second to last rosy desk page. And she would be like, hey, Tom, I'm gonna be a comedian one day. Yeah, yeah, whatever. And eventually she became a host of you. If you told me I was gonna be the desk page's opening act one day, I would have said you were crazy. Uh, you know, you, don't, you, you didn't know what was weird about being a page was and the one mistake i made and uh, get ready to drop names that nobody cares about now is but going back to the positive and emo thing is what i didn't realize was you never you didn't know out of the fifth you know the 20 or 30 peers you had in the program you didn't know which one was going to be the one to make it right and you never you never so, knew that because you, know, you, you know. like uh there's a friend of mine you know anan chulani i thought she was gonna he was gonna be a big name comedian listen he worked for tony robbins and now he's a life coach um you know sarah haynes she's the host of this uh there's the aubrey plaza story you know every aubrey right. plaza star of this that and the other thing you know there's also a lot of people who went through the page program and uh they became teachers and i'm not not gonna yeah. teach but they said you know what i'm gonna go get a city job after this you know there's a lot of stories like that as well um, so what I have learned is to enjoy the star effort stories, but to not, I, but, but to, uh, to, I've, I, I have yet to find the right balance of telling star effort stories without being defined by the star effort stories, you know, or the page well, stories. Look, and listen. again, you, you could sum it up. I mean, you know, uh, which, which again is, is more reason to just in, like, if you're waking up in the morning and enjoy what you do whatever that is yeah really that's the most important thing it really because you could get a high paying job you could blah blah the fact is if you can wake up and literally even if you're you know you're not rich off it but you enjoy what you do because even to your point the fact is a lot of these folks um all of them celebrity you know big celebrities or pages you know all of these jobs people get they come, but eventually the show gets canceled or eventually, well, you know, weird so thing, actually yeah. here's a, here's a feeling, an emotional feeling. If there's a lot of pages listening to the podcast, I want, I bet everybody has this moment in, in common. Listen, there was that moment where I did a full year in the page program. Uh, 
I think I was approved for an extra two weeks after. Uh, I wound up getting the job at Rosie, but what was weird was the come down. Yeah. Uh, like the come down from, no, that's not your job anymore. Uh, like, I mean, and here's the thing, I was making more money. Uh, and I think every page goes through this. Yeah. It is like, there's nothing like watching the first Saturday night live after you're a page where you're not allowed in the building anymore. You know, like it's one of those, <laughs> listen, I'm like, listen, pages made. As long as security power. doesn't uh, have your name up on their board, you're, you're okay. No. Yeah. But, it, but there's that weird feeling of you're, you're not making 10 bucks an hour. You know, you, like whatever it was, I was making twice the money. I had health insurance. I had this, I had that, I had the other, whatever. And then there I am mad. I'm not the guy in the polyester suit walking people up the stairs anymore. It's a weird come down. Like uh, I watched, uh, you know, like when I watched those Saturday Night Live reunion shows, it's weird. There's that moment of I was a part of that. Actually, the big thing that I was a part of, a, a weird history-making uh, moment that it's history if you make it history. Do you remember the movie Man on the Moon with Jim Carrey about the life of Andy Kaufman? Yes. They actually shot the Studio 8H scenes in 8H. Yes. And they had a few of the pages who were lucky enough, got to dress up as 1970s pages. You know, like my friend George Tiggle got to wear a 70s uniform and I think they gave him an actual Afro. Um, you know, there was a few other pages, my friend Josh Payne, who uh, actually oversaw the program for a while and wound up working at uh, Saturday Night Live. He was in a 70s uniform and it was a weird thing because I was on the eighth floor I didn't have the most, I'm mad. I didn't have the most glamorous job that day. And remember, Rosie O'Donnell shooting in 8G. Man on the Moon is shooting in 8H. Uh, Jim Carrey is just walking around. And there's a documentary about this that I didn't understand. But go. everyone should go look at the documentary on Jim Carrey making Man on the Moon. Because when I saw him, he was brainwashed into thinking he was Andy Kaufman. And I was talking with Jim Carrey, and I'm like, well, Jim Carrey's a little socially awkward. <laughs> and, and then I was assigned to go do security in the hallway. If you're walking from the elevator bank towards the studio uh, and you go down, there was a, it turns out REM by coincidence, and they did the soundtrack for Man on the Moon. By coincidence, they were shooting in, they were doing a guest appearance on Rosie O'Donnell next door. Wow. Now, you talk about being a part of history, but not knowing you're a part of history. Oh, yeah. Michael Stipe is the lead singer of REM. He is, or at least at the time, was bald. Rosie was known for doing a lot of work with cancer patients and being kind to people who were sick and uh, whatever. And Michael Stipe is now in this empty hallway I am guarding. Uh, he walks from the rosy dressing rooms or whatever, and he's sheepishly peeking and looking at the action going on in the main hallway. And I am talking to Michael Stipe, not like he is the lead singer of one of my favorite bands, but like he was a 40-year-old man beating cancer. And I'm like, isn't it nice to be around all of this today? Gosh, isn't it a special day? 
And he's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was very polite and kind to me. And then he goes back to wherever he was and somebody goes, you know, dude, you were just talking to Michael Stipe. And you know the magic of what's happening right now is his band has music on that movie. And this is a weird coincidence. Um, you know, and it's about the dead comedian. You know, like it, it was just a magical day. But anyway, but that was the magic of Rockefeller Plaza is you didn't, you know, if you didn't know famous people, you know, famous people and non-famous people mingled you know the commissary which was on seven when we were there and now it's much more glamorous on on nine um you know you you, you could be in the commissary getting a burger with the guy who's working in the mailroom and uh broke yeah yeah you know like it was and that's the fun i i do miss and abc had a cafeteria and it was you know almost as magical but the difference between 30 rock and where the view is now at 66th street is because of that influx of snl energy the entertainment energy and the entertainment talk show energy and the news energy you just never knew what the hell you and also the fact that uh, the offices were all vertically stacked in the same building you never knew the, the elevator door would open and then boom, there's Tom Brokaw, you know, uh, the elevator doors open at NBC and you look down and, and, and even still to this day, Peacock rugs in the elevator. It's like a trademark thing. The difference between NBC and the other networks is they're still a little bit proud of their history. You know, if you go, I worked at Drew Barrymore uh, for a bit, and Drew Barrymore is amazing, and Drew Barrymore acknowledges that her studio is historic, and I forget what was in there. Uh, You know, a lot of CBS News history is there. Which she does at the broadcast? uh, She's in the broadcast center at 59th, uh, uh, 57th and the 10th. Right, which actually, and again, let me just pause for a second. Um, I I do agree with you. Uh, There is something magical about 30 Rock, and it's weird because, you know, at ABC, The View, um, you know, you, most of those things are on the ground floor. It's that you come in, you go into the show. Yeah, and it's a building, great it's building. Very, yeah, it's very limited to what you're doing. And then I worked for WCBS at the broadcast um, uh, center. And again, same thing. It was a, it's, it's sort of a big building and, you know, they have a couple of studios here and there. But there was something different about the 30 Rock building because, it, you know, again, between S, even though there's only really nine floors of the main building and you had all the offices on the other towers, there was something amazing about that building because for some re- reason, there just was like, there were like, everybody was walking around in the same space um, at CBS or even at ABC. Yeah. You, don't, you don't really necessarily bump into them. And you know what it is too, man? The It's not just NBC that makes it historic. You walk in and it's the Art Deco buildings. Right, yeah. it's the it's the giant marquee it's yeah. the sign that says observatory and rainbow room right. uh you get in uh you know it's the art deco ceilings in the halls of rockefeller plaza right. i would argue that the number of entrances was a little more limited for the studio building so you were encountering more history if you were a page because you had to go in the same door as the celebrities uh whereas uh and you know what man the pages are part of that history and uh, right. uh you know things we haven't talked about are the boring parts of being a page which is tourists pay money to go on tours of your workplace <laughs> you know like crazy. if you pause like what was nice about like everybody hated you know like the christmas tree lighting day uh, and the season 
uh, at Rockefeller Plaza. I've been told it, it, it was read in the New York Times that the people who worked in Rockefeller Plaza would call the tourists the FTPs, the effing tree people. That's quoted in the New York Times. Don't call me dirty for being on your podcast. That is the New York Times talking, not me. And I, you know, and one of the things that made me successful in my career is pausing to appreciate that people were going on vacation to see where you and I worked. It was, you know, a, and I mean, it was exactly, I, yeah. I it, it's, it's, and that's why, and I'm going to mention Brian Grossman. You don't know Brian Grossman, do you? No, no. So he was a page with me as well. And again, when we started, we sat in the SNL studio, like on our first week there, whatever. And we just, we just sat there in awe. And yeah. Just, you know, like, like, could you believe we're sitting here by ourselves? So again, to your point, you know, the, the architecture, the art deco, you know, all of the, all of the, even the elevated doors, the floors, Letterman studio, you're when you, and even like, like, you know, um, Johnny Carson, which was on six B, which was the live at five studio. Um, I believe he did it in, in that studio originally, but you're walking on a space that is like, like hollowed ground. Like you're, it's, it's yeah. But again, it's hollow ground. If you make it hollow ground. Um, but, I, and I think the trick is you have to, I, I'm going to, it's hallowed ground. And I think you have to make yourself in the mindset of appreciating the hallowed ground. Like one of the smartest yeah, things. Some I've people, done. some people don't care. Some, I, I know page, one of the, one of the, one of the pages who was on the show said they were listening to the, to the podcast of themselves with their child in the car. And the child says, what are we listening to? And the child and the dad says, well, this is about me when I was a page. And the child said, what, first of all, they, I don't know how this is possible. The, the child was like, you're a page. What's that? Then they said, I worked at NBC and they literally said, what's that? And then they said, you know, channel four, you know, and you know that you want, and the child was like, yeah. I don't really care. So the, so again, the issue is nowadays, no one gives a rat's so about so this, but you know, it is listen, man. And maybe that's what makes history actual history when it is officially a time gone by. Yeah. Uh, and listen, one of the smartest things I say on my Tom Kelly show podcast, which is about me comedically owning my midlife crisis. Uh, I did, I just vacationed in Maine. Uh, for about three weeks and I'd actually still be there because my standard for when I was ready to leave Maine, it was a working vacation, but my standard was I was right across from the ocean and my feeling was it's time to leave the beach when you no longer hear the waves. And I'll argue this about working in television and whatnot. If you stop appreciating the magic of people go on vacation to see where you work, it's time to leave Rockefeller Plaza. If you miss the magic of being around people going to see the entertainment you create, it's time to leave the show business. But we're also in a period of time, man, where, you know, like my buddy Adam Wade gave up his family in New Hampshire to come make it at NBC. Uh, I have friends who have given up law careers uh, Dino Badala, who is a big uh, radio personality on Sirius, uh, political personality who you should have on the podcast. Um, he gave up being a lawyer to be an NBC page. He gave up a career making, let's make it a hundred grand a year to go make $10 an hour as a tour guide for the hope of being a joke writer and comedian. And the page program was his gateway there. Uh, I'll argue now for many years in my parents' neighborhood, 
I was the most successful guy in entertainment. Well, now there's a guy named Joey Nero on TikTok who has 4 million viewers (laughs) (laughs) and he's the most popular guy in his high school. And what does he do? He sits in his mother's basement with his sister yelling swear words at his iPhone. It's true. And I'll argue my nieces and nephews, unless I drop the name of a Taylor Swift or something like that, they don't really care when I was working. You know, they don't, uh, you know, so I would argue the, the standards and tools you need to become a famous entertainer have changed. Right. And actually that's a good point. The, the, um, and it's funny, you know, Jennifer Aniston mentioned, you know, people becoming famous for, for having no talent. And then she sort of got a little flack because I guess her, you know, her parents were famous, which helped her get into the industry. But uh, yeah, to that point, there are people that literally could have zero talent and get, you know, 9 million. No, well, actually you just said it. I'm going to pause for a minute because I'm not calling this guy, Joey Nero with no talent. I don't don't know who this guy is, but I'm not calling any, actually, I'm going to say this out loud before uh, the hard part is uh, all those TikTok stars have some form of talent. Right. Uh, you know, I'll even argue Jennifer Aniston had some for actually using Jennifer Aniston's career as an example. In the old days, you not only needed talent and beauty, but you also needed somebody to connect you to the only five places you could showcase that talent and beauty. Right. Arguably now the gatekeeper is different. The gatekeeper is big brother. It's a machine. It's whatever. We we don't have to go too far down the road of where's TikTok going, but I'll argue it diminishes a little bit of what made our time in that building special because there was a point, man, from I would argue 1929 in the NBC radio days to, you know, when did the internet start becoming big? Uh, 2010? I mean, I know there was internet before that, but there was a point where you could not get famous outside of the big three networks. Right. Now you could achieve Jennifer Aniston fame and money, arguably on your own. Right. I mean, arguably, you know. Right. Yeah, uh, no, it's an interesting shift because because even from, you know, um, well, it's so funny. Here it is, you know, again, you, you know, you work in radio. I, you know. You've been in and out. WLAR, you know, obviously for those listening know that I'm, uh, you know, it's in my blood. So the reality of it is back in the day to you for uh, like the fact that we're talking now and, you know, potentially millions of people could hear this back in the day. It was really funny when I went to school, uh, WLAR had the airline and they played, uh, music. You could hear, listen to the music, uh, on hold when you call the airline, which was the phones, which I also worked. Mm-hmm. I used to call, this is insane. Talk about, I mean, this is what was important to me, the new music that I used to listen to. And if you, and I will tell people to listen, uh, go watch the movie new wave. Uh, it's called new wave. I don't know if it's dare to be different new wave WLIR. Just look, Google it. You'll find it. I remember the slogan Um, there. Yeah. Yeah. I would literally call the airline and ask them to put me on hold so I could listen to WLIR while I was in Boston. And I think it was like a dollar a minute or like $5 a minute to listen to it. That's how insane I was because I was homesick in Boston and I, and there was, nobody was playing this music and I'm, this is the insane craziness but you know again that was something so important to me and things shit the fact that we can now record this and put it you know and i could put it up on the internet and millions of people could listen to it you know whatever 
um, really is amazing. And I think that folks that are our age, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to uh, Mr. Chris Samino, uh, who has his own oh. podcast. Let me, let me, his, it's uh, Chris, if you're listening, let me, let me, I have to find oh, out. You're going to edit now. You're going to edit. Mid- oh, it's the midnight. No, midnight. Let's see. It's, it's, it's called, um, look for Chris Samino has a podcast for midlife. Uh, you can do it on your end. Uh, it's so uh, it's like midlife warriors. Uh, I can't remember what it is, but in any case, he interviews folks about, Oh uh, my God. So wait, it's believe in middle age, middle age warriors, middle age warriors. Okay. So, uh, Chris Samino, you're listening. Um, little shout out to your podcast. He interviews folks that are in their, you know, mid, uh, you know, their mid forties, fifties, whatever it is. And, uh, he had me on as a guest and, um, and you clearly should be a guest. Uh, but it is interesting but, but, but how people shifted. Here, but here's what's funny too is how we can start shows and throw them away so quick. Chris has not updated his podcast since February 25th. Here you are promoting a show that he has not done a new episode of since February 25th. And this is where the industry's I'm gonna, changing. I'm going to call him today and get on him. Oh, no, he just, yeah. he's been very busy. He's had a busy, busy year. Yeah, and that's the cool <laughs> Andy Warhol once said, everybody in America will be famous for 15 minutes by 20 something, whatever. I'm going to argue everybody in America is going to have a TikTok that goes viral for 15 seconds is my prediction for the future. Right. You know, you go to to CBS, like part of what makes CBS depressing right now is the CBS broadcast center has an entire floor of what used to be CBS radio holdings. And now all the rooms are empty. They gutted all the expensive equipment and it is, they still have the 1980s phones with the cha-chunk, cha-chunk buttons, the office phones that you would see there. They still have the uh, microphone stands, but they took the good microphones. You know, they sold off that which was sellable and the rest is just junk sitting there. Um, And it looks like, you you know, you you stand there and you just wonder, God, is CBS, CBS going to sell this to be a condo one day? I will tell you this. Is that the rumor? You ready for this? You sitting down? I am sitting down. That building, I believe, is up for sale. And there they're, you go. And they're literally, I read it yesterday. They literally, the CBS Broadcast Center, which which is iconic, but now has turned into a dump. Is it, it, I used to work on the second floor at WCBS. In the, yeah, it's not. But quite it's literally. Dumb. Could you imagine that? Yeah. That building is again. See, for me. Well, well, I get, look, the history is younger history. kids, Only if they you don't care, history. right? They don't care anymore, but that building is iconic in my eyes, but yeah, it probably will be a condo. So you just, you just called it right there. Well, and along those lines, listen, uh, if you want to understand real estate value and what entertainment costs, uh, ABC or Disney sold all of ABC's property on 66th street. Uh, ABC, yeah. ABC really had six scattered or seven scattered buildings between Central Park West and uh, Riverside Drive. Uh, And they had, let's make it seven buildings. I'm making up the numbers here a little bit. Um, They sold those seven buildings to buy Fox. They sold the seven buildings for $1 billion and they bought Fox for $50 billion. So if you want to understand what Fox Studios cost, Imagine 50 blocks of the Upper West Side. 
And by the That's way, I think they I think they purchased where the winery used to be yeah. in Tribeca to build offices there. I believe. Yeah, and that's so, what, yeah. and they're building something that should open in the next eighteen months uh, down there. Now, what will so the uh, so for my history, um, there are two giant studios at sixty sixth and West End where the View used to tape. All my children used to tape. One Life to Live was there for a bit. Ryan's Hope was there. Um, now I'm talking about soap operas for the younger listeners who don't remember that. Uh, but the place was a 24 hour factory of daytime entertainment. Well, that's an art form that's gone. Like a soap, like, uh, you know, the stage hands, the, the, the building was going 24 hours a day because with the soap opera, they were creating one new hour of content five days a week. And, uh, the, the long story longer is the studios are still there but disney sold the building on the left which is being converted into medical space that was abc offices and the problem was the studios were unusable for a long time because the hvac equipment was in the building next door and now lauren is renting these two studios nobody knows what's really in there i think they're shooting extra scenes for saturday night live and that's two giant tv studios where guys and girls would freelance and they's guy, girl, you know, where people would freelance and they're gone now or yeah, they're not what they used to be. And I'm going to mention, it was funny, uh, again, when I was at, like, I was so nosy and I know every inch of 30 rock, I was also as nosy at, at CBS. Yeah. And I remember, I don't know how I got there, but I remember walking down almost like a spiral. I don't know. Maybe you know about it. There's a spiral, like, uh, path driveway at the CBS broadcast center. And as you go around this whole spiral thing, it says, uh, I'm making, you know, uh, one life to live fireplace, uh, Ryan's hope kitchen. Okay. So, like, so along this whole like telescope, uh, or, 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 um, you know, circular thing going down underground, all of the sets for all of the, the soap operas were stored in there. And I, and again, for me, and I'm walking around and I'm seeing these legendary sets just shoved into a cubby hole as an, to me, it's legendary. And I'll give it, and I, I always give a shout out to, um, do you know, Joe DiTullio? No, but that's a great name. So Joe, and I, I've given him a shout out, like everything I'm hopefully he'll be on the show someday, but he was a page and is one of the, uh, art directors at SNL who builds all the sets with, okay, with Eugene Lee. And you know, there's like, uh, yeah whatever ray wood i think so i am so fascinated i for some reason i don't know what it is but i'm so fascinated with the ability to design a set build a set store the set how you how it comes together it's just fascinating to me and, and joe to his credit literally still works for snl and i and he, i'm so fascinated by the whole thing so i was just so fascinated by seeing the sets and how they build them because to me that's what television is 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 the magic of television, which is why, again, I do magic, which is how I knew the Dick Cavett relationship. No, happened. but a funny one, like, but, but it, you know, like you talk about how the world is changing and I hope I'm not being, I hope I'm giving you the entertainment dollar that you and your listeners need today. Uh, but if I were allowed to be deep for a second, history is what you make it. If you choose to know it's history and make it history 
And like you, you told the story about the $800,000 Letterman desk. Well, in 10 years, that desk is going to be worth 50, 50 bucks. You know, um, no, but for real, like right yeah. now, if you gave yeah. me that desk, if you gave me that desk, how the hell am I going to get it up the stairs in my fourth floor apartment? How am I getting it down the little hallway over there the, to get it into the apartment? Um, you know, history is history if you choose to recognize it and you choose to keep it, you know, like uh, I just did a great bike tour. Uh, I was biking in Southampton, New York. And by accident, I stumbled into Long Island University's old campus there. And speeding through the story, there's all these beautiful farm buildings that are going to be, and a windmill that I believe are going to be torn down to build a hospital. Now it's noble, okay, the hospital curing six people, you know, it's like it's, it's not like they're tearing it down to build a Chuck E. Cheese or a Walmart, but still you go, that's a windmill. Yeah. That's an effing windmill. But you know, but then you get into, okay, fine. Where are we going to move the windmill? Do you have a yard big enough to put it in? Right. You know, you talk about all those Letterman set pieces. Yes, they belong in the Smithsonian, but who's going to donate enough money to the Smithsonian to keep it alive? Uh, my old university, my college, uh, I went to college in Connecticut. You ever hear of Yale? Yes, I have. I went to school right down the block from there. And <laughs> but um, do you have a rim shot on the... Yeah, that's a, that joke, 300,000 views on TikTok. Anyway, but Connecticut University put a lot of energy into uh, creating the only museum in America dedicated to the Irish hunger. And as a man who is a first generation or second generation Irish, um, you know, I don't know enough about it, you know, and it's all these artworks and things, but basically there's a new president who said, you know what, the museum's not making money. Who wants to take this giant art collection? And basically they were begging people to buy the whole collection instead of breaking the collection up. Again, it's historic if, you know, there, I think there's almost standards for preserving history to your point. Well, even uh, I'll give you, we have, I, I want to ask you one other question in a second, but even just to wrap this yeah, uh, point sure. up, um, I had a Sony, I guess, nine inch monitor, a, uh, you know, like a tube, mon a tube, uh, like a, you know, it was a professional onset monitor that you'd use if you're shooting on set somewhere. And I had a lot of other equipment. So that monitor, and I'm very meticulous. So the monitor I had was was as good as the day I bought it, brand new. So I literally, I was like, well, what? It same. It was under my bed. I'm like, what am I doing with this thing? You know, I'll again. I don't, I don't have room for it. So I said, let me walk over to B and H, and B and H is right down the street. I walk in with this brand new monitor, and I said to him, you know, and they have a whole used equipment section there's a whole section and i said you know how much will you give me for this monitor he literally said nothing yeah so i said it's a brand new. i mean it was a it was a it's a so literally i walked outside and i took it and i very carefully laid it on the sidewalk next to the garbage pail and walked away so i left this brand new condition monitor but the technology has has gone away and no one uses it anymore. So it's it's unfortunate, but but things do change. And it, at some point you do, you have to just well throw, throw it in the trash. I don't well, know. But, well, here's an interesting thing with, is what we did historic and will continue to be historic. I, listen, in this phone, I have what I needed 
$350,000 worth of digital equipment to do when I was in college. Plus it has a built-in satellite transmitter. If you think about it, this right. camera is better than I have a $5,000 camera. I use to shoot news pieces for when I contribute to ABC news. This frankly in good lighting does better than that. I have about a thousand dollars worth of podcasting equipment here. Uh, honestly, uh, when I use the podcast equipment with my old video camera, it has a slight hum. The audio is almost better in the phone. Um, so you get into the things of, do we need the giant building to create entertainment? And then the next standard is, will we remember that giant building anymore? And I think what's interesting about our time in different chapters of the NBC building is, I think you will find that there the stories are still passed down and because they have that page program that keeps the building historic you know like uh, studio 3k like through you know for as noble and big business as nbc universal comcast uh shinewind whatever it was uh is you know there are still stories passed down from union guy to union guy to page to whatever um you know, where we know that the first color studio in America was on the third floor, that there right. was where in the building they did radio broadcast where click, 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 click. And now some of the story, because it's an oral history, some of the stories will get screwed up. Like I have been told the story of Tuscanini's floor is slightly exaggerated. You know, like, you know, the story of Tuscanini's floor. Yeah. That's well, just, yeah. I'll tell the story quickly because yeah. I don't want to digress, but you know, Studio 8H has a floor that is very well insulated because Arturo Tuscanini from the NBC Music Orchestra of the 1920s uh, wanted the perfect performing space. Well, you know, he, he was, they were isolating, my understanding, they were isolating it from the subway rumble. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, you're telling me that the other studios don't have that rumble. And I mean, it's funny. I remember uh, being at the Conan O'Brien fifth anniversary special and uh, somebody drops something and Andy Richter yells out, be careful. You don't want to damage Tuscanini's floor, you know, uh, you know, but there's also Tuscanini's garden. Was that open when you were there? Yeah. Well, actually, you, 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 well, a couple of things. One is the garden on 11. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So the, 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 again, for the, for listeners on the 11th floor, if you go through like a window, a window door or whatever it is, there's an outside garden with goldfish, like this little pond that was closed when I was there because rumor had it, someone jumped off of it. One of the yeah. Americans killed himself. I don't know if that was true, but I, again, being so nosy, I used to go out there all the time. You were able uh, to get up there. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I don't know. I used to go, uh, well, like I said, I, I, I used to climb through all different things. So I would be out there all the time. There was one time where I took a Who camera. mowed the lawn? There was a grass up there. Who mowed the there grass? Was. They, well, they, yeah, somebody had to have maintained the grass. It's true. Um, yeah. It's, and who was feeding the goldfish, to your point? Yeah, they there, yeah there must have been somebody taking care of the grounds because it was, I don't want to say it was totally manicured, but it was looking good. But I remember once I was up on the roof with my camera. And again, I had a, you know, uh, a real, you know, uh, 35 millimeter camera, you know, thanks to my dad at the time. And I remember shooting photos and I remember climbing onto the roof, climbing through a window. And one time the something, you know, got closed and I couldn't get back into the building. So I literally found a roof 
like a like an opening, and I climbed in it, and I wound up coming into the uh, Lindy's Cheesecake uh, Restaurant. It was on the corner. Okay. I literally came. I literally climbed into the inside of Lindy's because I threw <laughs> Roxanne, you know, and I'm like, you know, okay, thanks very much. And I walked out because I couldn't sort of get back in, but I let, let me touch on, on Tusc Tuscanini, um, where the page did this again, useless information, but where the page desk is outside of eight H there's a closet right across from the page desk. And if you open the closet, there are shelves with all garbage and lights and things. But if you look, and if anyone's listening, try this tomorrow. If you look behind the shelf, there's an there's an elevator bank, and that was uh, Tuscanini's private elevator to get to SNL from downstairs That's somewhere. Still there? Is that still working? It's still it doesn't work, but you can see the the lights and the door in that room. That. So yeah, so if there's any actually, if there's any uh, pages or anyone anyone listening, you go to take a picture of it. You know the story of the Muppet Room, right? I do. I and again, I knew that room before they made it part of the tour. So me too. So when I yeah. was there, it was Max Weinberg's dressing room. Okay. And uh, at one point, you know, everybody was rumored. So to, there was a room. There's a lot of steam pipes in. You know, there's rooms where you would open a closet, and it would just be pipes that go up and down. And in what was a dressing room on the sixth floor, one day Jim Henson, while doing something for Sesame Street or while doing Saturday Night Live, because there were Muppets in the first three episodes of Saturday Night Live, uh, decorated these pipes with Muppet-esque stuff. And it for literally, and again, it doesn't become history until someone chooses to recognize it as history. It was just Max Weinberg's closet with some Jim Henson crap. Right. And then one day somebody put a plexiglass wall and a little plaque on it and it became a historic stop in the tour. Right. So let me again, let me tell the viewers. Yeah. So if you walk down uh, the sixth floor right. and you hang a right to go to the stairs, when I was there, it was literally it wasn't Max's uh, thing because Conan wasn't there at the time. It was yeah. just like a union guy's office. I mean, it was just a dumpy Ooh. whatever. Somehow I found out about it and I literally knocked on his door. And again, it's like, you know, it reminds you of, you know, nothing for me today. Thanks. You know, Animal House when they're walking out with yeah. the meat under the thing. I, I said, excuse me. You know, and I walk in and there was a the panel and you I pulled open the panel. And sure enough, was the all the pipes had fur and eyeballs and drawings of these uh, Muppet characters. And that was in the wall. I could have taking it you know i mean i totally had and that's a weird it. thing is how did people not damn and, and that's a weird thing about history yeah. is i uh, i didn't i mean i guess i had the opportunity i didn't but you think about just yeah i'll take one of jim henson's eyeballs right yeah how did God, that not nobody, get destroyed that's true nobody did and now i heard that that the wall that i used to used to go through they took the wall out and then they put plexiglass so the whole thing is open where now the tours yeah. go in and see it which is incredible yeah uh, and again it's history if you choose to make it history another weird one not on the tour is rockefeller plaza was built in the 1920s if you're going to tell me about the pipes I'm going the to nazi pipes mind. i went See, looking for the nazi pipes okay, you're gonna i'm gonna lose my mind because did you ever next, find nazi pipes well the next thing i was gonna well, say wait hang on let me wait, but let me set up well, the, the, answer is, yeah, set up the, the pipes answer. were from nazi germany because Nazi Germany, we weren't at war with them yet, and they were big makers of steel. So a lot of the pipes were imported from Germany with 
pipes that were from Germany. And at the time, the Nazi flag was their thing. And yeah, so Rockefeller Center was built with pipes with Nazi logos on it. So what's your story? No. So basically, I was going to repeat that same story you just said. And yes, I found the pipes with the Nazi logo on them in the stairwells. You just walk in the stairwell and there's a big Nazi symbol there. And now I believe they covered them with um, like insulation. Yeah, no, I, I read there was an there was an effort to cover them up at some point. Yeah. So, well, it's really funny because, again, I sure we weren't like uh, separated at birth because we have too many like it's really, like I literally was just going to mention that to you. And you're like, do you know about the Nazi pipes? No, uh, well, um, but I was fascinated with the building. Listen, we yeah. the one that we were going to tease that I always found fascinating and it was a piece of history destroyed was Hurley's Bar and Grill. I was there for the end of Hurley's. Now, for those of you, if you if you go to Sixth Avenue, uh, go stand on the west side of Sixth Avenue, face Rockefeller Plaza at 49th and 50th Street. You will see two little buildings, and and you go, wow, who would put a brownstone little building next to Rockefeller Plaza? Well, they were there before Rockefeller Plaza. And I don't know who was on the 50th Street side. That's where, and again, this is where history and oral history fades and goes away. But at the corner of 49th and 6th Avenue, there was a bar owner named Mr. Hurley. And Mr. Hurley had a long lease, if not owned a building, and said, screw you, Rockefeller. I survived the prohibition. I'm not giving up my bar so you can build a giant building. And he kept the building going. Now, Mr. Hurley himself kept selling the bar to other people. And whoever bought the building and bought had the name Hurley, uh, I actually know the son of the last owner of 49th Street, Hurley. He said his father, who was a man named Adrian, who would only let you go in if you were wearing a blazer or if you were a union guy. Uh, the bar was the place where all these people who worked at NBC and RCA and uh, NBC radio would all go drinking uh, to the point where the legend has it. And I've been told the legend is true that some union guys from Saturday Night Live or stagehands actually wired a phone line, a 664 phone number to go into the bar. And apparently that was working until the end is what the legend has it. supposedly there's a secret door to go in on the second floor was, but I, I've never found that. Um, and listen, and it's the place where, you know, it's funny how you're telling me I can't say dirty words on your silly little podcast, but you know, Jack Parr quit the tonight show because he couldn't say the word water closet for toilet and legend has it. That's where he went and was crying after he quit NBC. He was drinking there and he said, they'll hire me back tomorrow. And a little man named Johnny Carson took over right after that. Well, it, it's funny. And, and ironically, again, we, we, we must be separated because that was going to be my last question about Hurley's. <laughs> so again, you read my mind on that. Well, And then but, what was weird was, but actually you talk about how we are separated at birth. Um, I was a page and I was working at Rosie O'Donnell for that transition. So I think Hurley's closed late 1999 fall of 99 and I, I have a couple of my friend robin olkers who is another guy who might be separated b- from birth with you 
took a 35 millimeter black and white camera and took some pictures from that night. Uh, but I, we, we were there for the last couple of nights of Hurley's because what would happen would be if you couldn't get into the Saturday Night Live after party, you went downstairs to Hurley's. Uh, right. Hurley's was a real Irish pub. Legend has it. It was a flower shop during the prohibition and Mr. Hurley ran it as a speakeasy. Um, and, you know, eventually, again, you talk about the magic of real estate killing what is mom and pop history everywhere on earth is, um, a man, you know, the, the, the bartenders all wore their little uniform things and to go down to Hurley's was a grown up thing. You know, I remember going there with my dad with a blazer on, you know, and having lunch with my dad. And eventually, uh, you know, eventually there is a Hurley's on 49th and 7th now. It's one the same, the son of the owner sold the name to a bar group and he's an investor in it. And when they reopened it, it was almost a step-for-step remake of the Hurley's you and I both know. And they just kept expanding the bar. And now it's really just manufactured Times Square Irish pub. Um, But yeah, you felt like what was, you know, the difference between being on the Upper West Side at ABC and being at 30 Rockefeller Plaza was, at least I felt it. I don't know if other people feel it, but I felt like I was a part of something magical. And when we talk about broadcast changing, uh, you know, in the age of I can broadcast from a TikTok or I could podcast from my apartment. Right. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious to see if that history will be preserved. You know, ABC is moving all their stuff. Now is 66th Street ABC historic. They've been there for 40 years, but they don't have a tour. You know, like I think that, you know, you almost wonder if that's the standard. They don't have a tour. Um, you know, I podcast from my apartment you know, and I, will 30 Rockefeller Plaza in 20 years be converted into doctor's uh, offices? Right. And will actually, dance club? Yeah, even, yeah. yeah, even this podcast, um, you know, in a way, and, it, and you've told me a lot of really interesting things that I didn't know. And again, I find it fascinating. So at least hearing your story and other folks' story to pass along information that literally could be lost um, and just hearing firsthand accounts of things. And it's funny, you mentioned 664. Um, as soon as you said 664, my phone number was 212-664-5512. That was my phone number at 30 Rock. Uh, and it just, and that's like 30 years ago. And I can't rewrite, I just remembered that. And Hurley's, again, for those listeners, you know, again, I mentioned this before. What was the last we, four numbers of your... Of your uh... It was 5512. 664-5512. Finish your story, and then we're going to do... We're going to call them. That would be funny. The, you know what? Well, I, guess, I guess, I guess let's call them live on the air. Here we go. By the way, this is totally illegal, but the, the David Katz who works in radio wouldn't... Let's see if it's still an NBC number. That would be funny. But it's funny, like I like phone numbers. Who even remembers a phone number now? And I right, I can't believe you. You know, these are mementos from a time gone by. Hello, and, you have reached the desk of Shauna Rogers. I'm unable to get to the phone right now, so if you could leave your name, your phone number, and a brief message, I will gladly return your call. Hi, Thank you. 
have a great day. Do we leave a nostalgic voicemail? I'll leave a message. I'll leave. Okay, here we go. Or press pound for more options. Hello, this is David Harris Katz. Uh, this phone number, 212-664-5512, used to be my phone number at NBC. And uh, you're currently live on a page in history. And we're, this is, see, this is actually a David Letterman moment because, you know, this is what David do. <laughs> well, the voicemail is going to so, hang up you in 30 okay. seconds. So uh, oh. if you get this message, go to a page in history.tv, a page in history.tv, send us a message. We'd love to have you on the show. <laughs> there you go. Okay. There you go. Yeah, phone number nostalgia. And here I am as That's I'm looking idea. at my phone, a Hooters girl I follow in Tampa just went live and she's broadcasting. And I just point out the differences. You yeah. talk about the stupidity of the world. Listen, the, and the Jennifer Aniston point is right and not right. You know, and, and again, she's very talented. I have nothing against. No, but I'm when not, it comes I'm from not actually a friendly person. But when but it comes from you and I, two washed-up friggin' tour guides, uh, it's a little thought, more thoughtful. In that, uh, listen, in the old days of going live, there were only three people who could do it. Actually, when you were in show business, there were only two men who did late-night shows. It was Johnny Carson and Letterman. Then, oh my gosh, when I did it, the number doubled to four. Now I may be the only white man in America without a late-night talk show. You know, and that's the joke, but I'm bumped. But you get the there's point. an opening at uh, CBS. Uh, you know. yeah, there is, but I heard the rumor is they're not going to fill it now. Because yeah. why? It's true. There's no, even when I watch, and I hate to say it, like even Fallon. Um, I mean, again, when Letterman was at, at uh, and we'll wrap this up soon. When Letterman yeah. was on uh, NBC, he, you know, and if, you, and if you do the research, you know, they really were just trying to come up with ideas to do anything that was not being done. And I loved all of that stuff. So when Letterman, you know, unfortunately, when he went to CBS, he became a more traditional talk show. There wasn't anything crazy. But when Letterman used to randomly call people, when Letterman would randomly try to break into offices, when Letterman would, you know, they would turn the screen 360 degrees, you know, while you're doing the episode to have some of the crazy guests that he had on. Um, that to me was truly groundbreaking. And that's what made it special. And I think even Conan, I'll give Conan credit. Conan, you know, really does try to push the boundaries of just like, let's try something different that other folks are doing. Not that I necessarily, so, you know. You know. I'll, I'll argue one big thing that's changed is one, we all have access to be the great broadcaster. And now entertainment is getting more fragmented and I'm curious to see what will be the bonding moments that hold us together. I think what made Letterman and Conan special wasn't just that they were groundbreaking with their humor. It was that for some reason, they were the anointed ones. Well, and now in this age of free media, is there are there really that many anointed ones? And like the idea of, I could go make it, well, isn't that special? And you'll know what I'm doing, even though that was an awful impersonation. The fact that every Dana person, Carvey. Dana Carvey doing church lady. Love Dana. Uh, and the fact that we could do that is, well, no, like, say, you know, it's going to be right. a lost art. It's a lot. I think what's interesting right now is we're nostalgic about a form of media, a form of entertainment, a loyalty to a certain amount of geographic space and that type of nostalgia is evolving. Right. I will say this. 
back in the day, you had three networks. This is what they showed Thursday night. Everyone watched Cheers, let's say, you know, um, whatever. Which, by the uh, way, that bar yeah. just went up for auction, too, for like a, a couple hundred thousand. Yeah, I know. And it's funny. Um, and again, when I uh, on my little uh, Hollywood seminar, we went to watch a taping of Cheers, which was wow. I mean, again, it was a mind boggling. And 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 ironically, when I was in Boston, the Bull and Finch, which was the was the outside of the Cheers, you know, yeah. I would, we would go, you know, we would go there and look and. And for those again listening, it's it pretty much looks nothing like the interior of of what they use of the of the set, but um, but but yeah, I guess the whole point is, um, you know, back in the day there was only three networks, and that's what everybody watched. Everybody you know watched Carson at night and then talked about it the next morning. Now the kids, to, you know, the kids today have no idea about any of that history, but you know, um, you know. When these kids who are, let's say, 20 or 30 now, when they're 50, they may look back at, let's say, Fallon on the air or something. And that none of that will exist. But they're like, you know, the, the way of the the way of of the of the world, you know, things are changing. So it's up to folks like us to either adapt or. You know, well, what's interesting too, but what's interesting, like actually, God, I just worked at, uh, I just worked at the View uh, last week, and my joke that I wanted to make was, uh, after not being at ABC for a while, I wanted to ask, is ABC still a network? Are networks oh. still a thing? You know, that was a joke in the back of my head if I was feeling cranky, and you get into the thing of now, there's benefits to the new age. One, the democracy, the you know, the fact that anybody can be famous is interesting. Right. The fact that uh, maybe we don't have to create a royal class of Hollywood. Right. That maybe my, a little piece of Tom Kelly's story and a little piece of David's story and Christian's story and Chrisetta's story and uh, Jenny's story, um, you know, whatever our page stories are, that maybe that little piece is, we, you know, that we're all getting a little sliver of the pie instead of all pushing for to eat the whole damn pie for one or two people. Right. You know, and it's interesting to see this age of entertainment that's lost with Letterman. Like you talk about early Letterman and how entertainment's evolved is the idea of just like I, I watch old Letterman on YouTube before going to bed. He has a great YouTube channel and there's other great clips uh, on YouTube of the 1980s stuff. There was a lot of slow stuff that just wasn't funny. There were days where he went out and he wasn't funny. But it was still, and but it was still a shared moment. Well, yeah, it was. Well, some some of the stuff was so bad that it was funny because it it was and he didn't you know it 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 was bad, but it was it was it was fun to watch, even though it was bad. Well, and it was what was interesting, and I don't know if we have that moment now within the age of everybody having their own live channel in their pocket. Right. Uh, again, there's a waitress going viral in my notification. She's a funny one, but there'll be a hundred. If I go in right now, there'll be a hundred people watching blah, blah, blah. And I don't want to get too detailed. Right. Um, but what's interesting is we all watched paint dry together. Right. You know, like what if sometimes if watching Letterman was watching paint dry, it was a weird moment. We'd all watch it together. Now in these age of all these offerings, it'll be interesting to see what's historic. It'll be interesting to see, uh, will anybody give a crap that I walked Chevy Chase 
to, into the building. Will anybody give a crap that I walked Henry Winkler to a toilet? And anyway, and that's where I get back to the, you know, my, the theme of my podcast, the theme of who I am as a person. And, you know, what I, and I, and I almost wonder if this is a podcast of only pages listening is, you know, that moment of how do we become more than just the, the star effort stories, you know, and that's what I explore every week on my Tom Kelly show podcast is, you know, as we wander for what's next, how do you recapture the magic of what was and bring it into, you know, life after 40 something. Right. Well, fascinating. So let's, uh, so to find your podcast, it's, uh, tell us again how to find it. You know, I should have done this 90 minutes ago, but it's all it, it, Tom Kelly show is the gateway to all t things. Tom Kelly, uh, Tom Kelly show.com is where you can find links to my podcast, my Instagram, everything, but my TikTok. Uh, and yeah, I've been sticking with the brand name, Tom Kelly show. I mean, listen, that's a whole other thing too. We could talk about for another time is, uh, what's better being called. Do, do people want to go looking for Tom Kelly? Or would they rather go looking for long island comedian.com you know you know what i'm saying right and that that is that is true i mean it it's um that is very very true um because it's and it's so funny jay leno when he took over tonight show it said the tonight show with jay leno and he specifically did not want the word starring jay leno because he's like you know who the hell is starring jay you know I'm not, who the hell am i basically he's like just with yeah so you know, th that was something that he wanted. And even for me, it's kind of funny because for the folks, uh, if you, if you're listening to this podcast, the, the open says, you know, with your host, you know, David Harris Katz, quite frankly, no one gives a rat's ass who David Harris Katz is. No, but um, what's funny is, so, you know, it's like, no, it's I don't funny, know. that line about uh, like, it's uh now I think it's the tonight show starring Jimmy Fallon. Now it might, it's, I don't know. Well, you could chat it. It might be, and yeah, it's funny. But it's, it funny, how, funny, it's funny how Jimmy brought back the word starring. And honestly, you know what I like about Jimmy is he, not only is he doing The Tonight Show in New York City, but he has, if you look at the art direction, and uh, he really has brought a little bit of the art deco flair and kept it at 30 Rock. He's yeah. in Studio 6B now, which is the old Carson studio. You know, they did a whole lot of refitting there when he went from late night to tonight show. And yeah, man. And, and it's funny, like that word starring, it was kind of a, like, you know, you'd say almost a douchebag move to go starring even Letterman who invented the late show didn't go starring, but there's also that kind of like retro classic artsy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I used to say my Tom Kelly show was the Tom Kelly show starring Tom Kelly. There you go. <laughs> you know, like actually really doubled down on the, you know, the, the 1960s eh, starring, starring, I'm a star, you know, well, it's funny. There was, there was, um, you know, some of the, uh, like, um, let's say food fan franchises or things that say, you know, the, the, the world famous pizza or, you know, Tony's well, world I, famous. And they're like, well, how is it world famous? And he's like, well, because I call it world famous, you know, um, it's all it's all branding and marketing. That's I got a weird feeling, man. You and I are going to be good friends, and I know <laughs> I know we're a long way in, and you've been trying to end the podcast for a bit. Uh, but I feel like maybe what if you invite me in for another six hour show one day? 
Yes, we'll have the the uh, marathon. Maybe we'll do a marathon session for uh, for uh, Tom Kelly. Well, yeah. listen, I appreciate it. The, the fascinating stuff, really interesting. I hope uh, the listeners, um, you know, uh, made it through. Um, and uh, no, it's been great. And I, I really hope that folks tune into your own podcast for more uh, fascinating um yeah your, it's, your weird. Like it's weird on, podcasting on that, it's a, it's that, emo it's you know, comedy it's a fun ride and i'd love to know what your you you and your listeners think of it there are days where i'm making you laugh and there are days where friends call and ask tom are you taking your medication are you about to hurt yourself it's a it's a real ride that's all i could say for sure is it's a real ride that's great well, listen, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it. So ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tom Kelly. Right, here we go. Thanks for listening to A Page in History. A Page in History is produced by David Harris Katz Entertainment. For more information on our television shows, syndication, and more, go to dhcats.com. And to listen to more episodes of A Page in History, or if you've been lucky enough to call yourself one of the world-famous NBC pages and would like to appear on the show, go to apageinhistory.tv.